Hello friends, hello campers, it's Haley Rawl, your host, welcome back to Girls Camp. Today's episode is really important to me, and I'm doing things a little differently this week, and I am releasing it in two parts, so you get two episodes of Girls Camp this week. Today's episode, part one, is today, Wednesday, as usual, and then I'm going to release part two on Friday. The reason that I decided to split this episode into two parts is because I sit down with one of my dear friends, Maddie Thompson, and we talk about the passing of her father, death and grief and loss, what that has been like for her as a deconstructed Mormon. It's just such an important subject matter, and Maddie did such a phenomenal job at really speaking to what her grief has been like. It's a little bit longer than usual, so I wanted to just split it into two parts and make sure that we could give the right amount of time and space and energy to this subject matter. As you can imagine, because the subject matter is death and grief and loss, just a trigger warning right off the bat, we are talking about all of those things. We talk a little bit about suicidal ideation. We talk about her father before he died in the hospital. Just want to give you kind of a clear picture of what we're going to be talking about so you know what you're getting into. I also wanted to say, and we talk about this in depth in course of the episode, we talk about death and grief in a very different way than I feel like I talked about death and grief as a Mormon. Basically, there is not a lot of sugar coating here, and I'm so appreciative to Maddie, I will say this a million times, for her openness in speaking to the depths of her grief and in speaking to how devastating and excruciating and confusing it is and her ability to not find easy answers or an easy way out from this really intense grief. Easy way out is maybe the wrong way of saying it. I've said this also before, but I never want to judge anyone for how they do handle grief, and Maddie talks about that as well. Grief is a very personal thing, and when you're dealing with death and loss, people find different ways to cope, and I think that's totally good, and it should be that way, and we also talk about that. I guess I just want to let you know that it's it's heavy, it's sad, it's hard, and we do not shy away from that. So I want you to be prepared and know that that's what we're getting into today. This episode, this conversation with Maddie really changed my life, to be honest. As someone who has not dealt very up close with death and hasn't really deconstructed that much around my views of death, it was really important to me to sit down and have such a meaningful conversation about this and to feel really let in to Maddie's experience. And it's caused a lot of reflection and pondering for me that I'm just really appreciative of. It is going to resonate for people who have experienced something similar. And if you haven't, it was really eye-opening and important for me. And I know it will be for you as well. For part one, which we are going to be listening to today, we talk a little bit about the death and grief aspect up front, and then we back out and talk more about Maddie's story with Mormonism and leaving Mormonism, her queerness, and some of these other discoveries about self that she has made. And then we will end today's episode 
after her father has a heart attack and is in the hospital. And then we'll pick up next week from that point on. So that's just kind of a lay of the land of how I've split up these two episodes for today. By way of campfire chat, I don't know. I'm feeling very reflective today. And I would say the past week or so, I've kind of been in a reflective, introspective kind of mood. I've been editing this episode of Maddie's, which has caused me to reflect even further and kind of analyze my own perspective on life and the meaning of life and all of these really big kind of existential questions. So I think I'm just coming from that place right now as I do this intro. And it's also a little bit rainy outside. It's kind of a cozy, late summer, rainy day. I'm just feeling kind of tender is maybe another way of describing it. Feeling really in touch with my emotions, feeling very emotional. I kind of go in these phases and even though it can feel maybe a little heavier or a little more somber sometimes, I'm appreciative of phases to sit and think and reflect. I feel like I used to kind of view these periods of my life as sad maybe or like bad. Like, oh, I had a bad couple weeks because I wasn't just bubbly and happy. And now I'm trying to reframe them as really important and a part of life to take time to sit and think and maybe ponder more serious things. So that's kind of where I'm coming from today. And I think this episode kind of makes sense considering that or this mood makes sense considering this episode. Yeah, that's my campfire chat. Just a little mood check in, kind of like I just sat down with my therapist and I'm telling them how I'm doing. So thanks for being a therapist for a second and listening to me wax eloquent about my mood. That's all I'm going to offer by way of campfire chat today. And without further ado, here is the episode with Maddie. Welcome, Maddie. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited this worked out. I feel like the timing is really nice. Mm -hmm. I've also been meaning to tell you. So Maddie, I'll intro you more offline, but I actually just this week have had like three or four people reach out to me Mm. asking for an episode about grief and loss. Wow. Which felt really timely. I've had, I've been talking to people about that topic But it felt like that the universe is telling us that this is something people are dealing with and want to hear about. And so I'm super grateful to you for being willing to talk about something Mm -hmm. that's not always the most fun topic. Yeah. Although I think we'll find some fun along the way. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if we're capable of not finding fun along the way. (laughs) I don't know. You have to see. Yes. You have a specific flavor of fun that I think melts into everything, which I think makes you an even better candidate to talk about this. Haley, that is so nice of it's you. It's true. It does make true. like talking about grief, I don't want to say tricky because I know I'm allowed to share my own experience, mm. but I do find myself making other people uncomfortable a lot. Like, mm. like what just happened when I went <laughs> to say hi to Bentley and Jed and casually referred to my dead dad. Yeah. That is something that's uncomfortable for people mm-hmm. and always was uncomfortable for me before. I went through the experience that I did, and at the same time, I'm in this place now of trying to merge who I've always been yeah, with who I am since my dad died, and also, in the middle of that, sort through what's actually me, what's actually true to me, what's my conditioning, what is 
Um, like in what ways am I masking to the public or to people around me or to my family? And it just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's complicated. It's like definitely not linear. And that I think is the general theme for me of my experience Mm. with grief is there are no rules when it comes to grief. And it's just a matter of listening to yourself and having compassion on yourself and trying every single day. And it's really special to me that people have been reaching out and wanting to know more about like people's experiences with grief post-Mormonism. I've found that since my dad died, there have been a lot of synchronicities in my life. Call them what you will, whether that's like divine intervention or if it's just coincidence. But I've noticed an abundance of people around me who are grieving and specifically a lot of people who have lost their dads and Mm. it's felt it was almost immediate when my dad passed that I felt this calling to share yeah my grief to share stories to share my experience because this person who was everything to me could no longer do so for himself Mm. you know yeah interesting Yeah. yeah I think that's really beautiful I really admire you talking about it, even in ways that maybe someone could deem, you know, flippant or joking (laughs) about it, because I think death is such a taboo topic. It's been interesting for me as I've kind of been thinking about this interview, I'm realizing how taboo I think about death. Totally. How I don't really know how to act sometimes around death or the right things to say to someone who's grieving. And... I'm super interested to get into the Mormonism of it all. Yeah. When your whole life, you have this idea of life and death. Death is taboo because it doesn't really exist. In Mormonism, you don't really have the space to talk about death because it just immediately becomes like, you'll see them again. You'll be with your family again. Like, why are you so sad? You'll see him. Like, there was someone at my at my dad's funeral who came up to my mom and was like, I don't know why everyone's crying. This was the most joyous experience. He was such an amazing man. And it's like, that right there is a little bit tricky for me. <laughs> That's really tricky, tricky because for a lot of reasons. You, it's all fun and games. You can say that until you go through an experience like having someone extremely close to you die. And you're like, oh, wait, no one knows. No one no knows. No one actually knows. No one actually knows. And we're all just relying on what we think and feel Mm -hmm. what we hope for what we hope for there's nothing actually tangible and so going from the mindset of not having to even like really comprehend the grief because you can just focus on the future yeah to then recognizing like oh there is nothing i can do about this and no one can give me answers yeah i think there's such an interesting thing with death specifically because i think what people grapple with around death is the finality of death yeah and what you're saying exactly and what you're saying is the mormon theology says it's actually not final i mean that's the whole christ rose again and because of that death isn't the final whatever and it is interesting as a post-mormon if you no longer believe that but it's even interesting as a mormon if you do believe that how do you reconcile what is going to be inevitable grief nonetheless yes It's been so interesting to see, or just to have this conversation with my mom, even, who is still very active and practicing in the church. I think she will, probably until the day she dies. I wouldn't want to take that away from her at this point, because 
especially since my dad has died, it is the core of her identity at this point. But it has been interesting to have these conversations of, wait, actually no one knows. And her having to then grapple with, I have always felt like I knew, but now I'm realizing I just believe. Mm. And believing something is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's not a fact, it's not finite. It's not as nearly as finite as death or the experience of loss. Yeah. And that has been so interesting to discuss with her and to observe still the ways that we cling to different things now for safety, for understanding. And I mean, both of our things work for us, even though they're completely different. Yeah, absolutely. But we both share the same core understanding of we have no idea and no one does. And we only can rely on what we believe individually. Yeah. And no one else can tell me that. Yeah. My sister can't, my brother can't. Like I've grieved so differently from them. This was the first time in my life, literally no one could clue me in or there was no escape. There was no, no like pretending because I was just completely alone in this incomprehensible reality mm -hmm. that I had always told myself would never be. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I can only imagine what a reckoning that is with so many things. Everything. My, yeah. the, the way my identity has changed in the past, well, in the past few years of my life, but specifically in the past year, everything has changed. My sexuality, my family relationships, my romantic relationship, my religion, my beliefs, my personality, the way I interact with other people, everything has completely changed because for the first time in my life, I couldn't pretend anymore. Yeah. I couldn't pretend. I couldn't put on any masks. I couldn't follow someone else's example. There was just nothing other than me and my feelings, my mind, my soul. And that's terrifying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's give, let's back out a little bit. Let's back a few steps out. Okay. Let's talk about your faith journey. Mm -hmm. You grew up Mormon. Mm-hmm just a brief overview of what it was like to grow up Mormon. And then we're going to lead into the faith transition, how that timing aligned with your dad's passing. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So grew up in Utah, born and raised Mormon, did all of the things, you know, young women's and girls camp and was on seminary council and went to BYU. Really, really strongly identified with being a member of the church and really never felt like it would be an option to leave. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I can see myself having thoughts of like, oh, I wish I was born not Mormon so I could get a tattoo, but then like feeling really guilty about that because I have this whole truth and the best thing I could ever have given to me, how dare I imagine a life without that. But I didn't really let a lot of those thoughts in throughout my life. I went to BYU. I served a mission, like I was saying earlier, a little bit later than some of my friends. I was going to go when I was 19 my boyfriend at the time had broken up with me and I was like, I guess I got to go serve the Lord. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then I went to put in my papers and realized like, I don't want to do this. Interesting. I didn't know this. Yeah. So I had finished my papers with my bishop and was like, no, I can't do this anymore. And literally I had been collecting missionary money since I was a toddler. I had this bank. My to pay for bank. your mission. Wow. And I went in with my sister and I cashed all of the coins in. And we went on a road trip to see a concert. <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, like that. You're like, mm, I'm going to do this. I really instead. was like, ha this is so funny. I always thought I would be a missionary. It doesn't feel right to me. And then 
a couple years later, I got out of another, <laughs> another relationship. Yeah, also serial dated men from the time I was 16 until the time I was 27. Mm-hmm. Including one John Bentley Rawl mm. and the iconic, <laughs> just a couple of dates, but one just of those a couple of dates. going down in history as um, one of the best, funniest dates I've ever been on. Yeah, it's a great story. It is. That's for another time. Got out of another relationship and just was feeling really unfulfilled and really not myself, feeling like I had abandoned myself and decided then it was time to go on a mission. Mm-hmm. So I went on a mission. I went to... El Paso, Texas, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I really actually loved and enjoyed my mission a lot. I have very fond feelings of it. I try hard to compartmentalize so that I can let myself have that experience for what it was rather than trying to like taint it in hindsight. I love that. Yeah. Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Like, There's part of me that wants to be like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know I was signing up to be a salesman for mm-hmm. a multi-billion dollar organization that's not run by God. Mm-hmm. And also God doesn't exist. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know I was signing up for that. And I can go down that rabbit hole and be like, Ugh, it's a lot of, that's a lot. Yeah. But I also learned this really important lesson on my mission, which at the time I thought was, you know, learning how to follow the Holy Ghost but I can see was like really believing in myself, believing in something to the point that I was able to accomplish it and also feeling so strongly that I had a purpose in something. Yeah. That like all of the shame I felt surrounding what other people might think just went away because I was like, I am doing the most important thing. Mm, Yeah. And so I always like looked back on that time on my mission as like, oh, that was the best time in my life. Like, how do I get to that point again? I guess I need to get up at six and read my scriptures and go exercise and make sure I'm sharing the gospel with people and keeping the law of chastity and not doing anything that could take the spirit away from me. And I think after my mission, I adapted that mindset of that, of like, if I can try to be like I was as a missionary, then I will have that same fulfillment. Yeah, didn't happen yeah not quite no I'm so glad you said that though because I think that's something I have forgotten about a mission is the power of a clarity of purpose yes kind of regardless what that purpose is yes you give me a little checklist of what I need to do in order to be a good person 100% cutie I will boop 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 exactly and go to bed like sleep like (sighs) a sleep like a little baby exactly yes and when you you feel so much fulfillment saying i am doing literally everything i can yes to achieve this purpose that i think is the greatest purpose ever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fulfillment in that there's also a ton of fulfillment in saying this is really difficult but i'm doing it anyway totally i'm finding joy in it yeah And I think it's important you mention that too, because I think that contributes a lot to what I think a lot of people who do love their mission feel when they come home, which is a gaping void. (laughs) A gaping void. I was lost. I did not want to come home. I got home from my mission and just hit the ground running, trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to spend my time doing. And also at the same time, feeling completely lost and also feeling like not myself and not really even sure if I have a self who is that self yeah and I jumped into a relationship pretty soon after like within a month of me getting home oh really just stayed in that relationship on and off for the next few years through like 
graduating college and moving to San Francisco, being a relationship girl had been such a thing for me my whole life that I just threw myself into that without recognizing, again, how vital it was to have security in myself mm. outside yeah. of a relationship, yeah. outside of church, outside of school. I never wanted to be alone. I never wanted to spend time alone because I didn't, I just, there was no reason to. Totally. Looking back, I think I could notice being alone made me recognize the dissonance in what I was feeling internally and how I was living, but that was just too much to even try to face. Totally. And rather than recognizing that I had the ability to choose what I want or not in a relationship, I think I was in the mindset of, you can make anything work. All you need is two righteous people to yep. make something work and a little marriage in the temple. Yep. And that... Just some covenants in the mix, and yeah, there you go. Yeah, throw in some cubs, throw in some garms, and everything's all right. <laughs> and I just believed that with my whole body, and I think I can see now that I really wasn't fully myself in that relationship. One, because I didn't know myself. I had never gotten to know myself or really tried to figure out who I was. But also because my, my goal or like what I was hoping to gain from that relationship was also something someone else had told me to do. Do you know what I mean? Like something outside of myself. We dated for a few years on and off. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco after I graduated and that was huge for me. That was the start of everything. I think yeah. getting out of Utah, popping that bubble and being like, Oh, okay. There are a whole bunch of other people in the world who live their lives completely differently from me. And they're really great people. Yeah. And you were in the workforce. So you were surrounded by coworkers. Oh yeah. Every day, all day learning about. Yes. Bentley being one of them. Yeah. So you, and yes. we moved at the exact same time to San Francisco. Yes, we did. And you were working with Bentley at BBDO. Yeah, we were working together. Yeah. It was so interesting because I remember when Bentley started to have some questions about the church. Really? And the utter panic I felt. And I, I remember being so with well. my work partner and Bentley, and we are just chatting, and he was bringing up some current concerns he had, I think, about Joseph Smith. And I just was like, like had so much fear of discussing that topic and also like fear for him and fear for our friendship and like what do I do what does this which, mean yeah which is so it's not funny to crazy. think about I know I have yeah. people like that too where I saw them not wearing garments for the first time and it was literally yeah physical reaction of fear and I think it comes from that almost tribal mentality of wait you're on my yes. this is our thing especially when you're living somewhere like San Francisco where not a lot of people are Mormon and mm -hmm. you're thinking, wait, you're a Mormon like me. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Yeah. And what does this mean for me? If you're questioning things, it's exactly. really scary. But at the same time, it wasn't about him. It was just my own discomfort. You know, I just didn't want to have that conversation with him and face things that were icky and uncomfy to me. And I remember again at your apartment one night, either you or Bentley brought up something about prophets and apostles and their salaries or something. And I was like, what? Like it rocked my world. I didn't realize we were those people for you. That's super interesting. I don't think I realized really at the time. Yeah. But have since started to recognize like, oh, there were moments mm -hmm. along the way. Yeah. Little which, crumbs, little breadcrumbs. Yeah. And I remember bringing it up to my dad when I went to visit Utah next and being like, dad, like I just found out that like apostles have salaries that are like 
pretty high. Seems <laughs> yeah. pretty crazy for me. Like, why don't you get paid as the bishop? You spend 40 hours a week doing this. And Great question. He was very uncomfortable. It was kind of our first tiff of him being like, you should check your sources before you just believe something. And me being like, I'm just trying to have a conversation. I'm just asking about this thing, but your defensiveness is making me feel like you know the answer and you don't want to tell me because you don't know how to explain the answer. So it's, it is interesting looking back, like how integral moving to San Francisco with the friends that I had at the time was to my deconstruction process. Yeah. That's so interesting to think we've never really talked about this, which is crazy, but I'm realizing we all left really, really, really closely to each other. Mm -hmm. And we went from moving to San Francisco as fresh out of BYU all together. And then right before Bentley and I moved, we were having like goth party where everyone was like drinking and smoking and no one was wearing garments. Yes. And that was for Bentley and I, we only lived there for under two years. So that was kind of the... And I mean, there was already cracks in the surface when we moved to San Francisco, I'm sure for all of us, but that was a pretty accelerated timeline of of leaving. No, it totally was. I moved to San Francisco and then a year later, I decided to end the relationship that I was in. And that was kind of the first thing I had ever really done for myself and like listened to myself and done like the scary thing rather than doing the thing that I really desperately wanted to do in order to stay safe. And I think that was the beginning for me of deconstructing because I started to have to be alone. I didn't have a like boyfriend anymore who I was like constantly texting or calling or like missing or funneling all of my energy into even when I wasn't with them, you know? Yeah. How would you characterize you're leaving. So you started to have those cracks. Things are being brought up. I started to have those cracks. And what it was is I think I started to give myself permission to have slightly different views. When I was by myself, I started to go on these long walks and go to the gold, like go sorry, go to Golden Gate Park and like have these moments with myself where I'm just like thinking and feeling. And I started to feel like, more connected to the earth Mm -hmm. and feeling like, oh, that must be like the heavenly mother side of this is this like feminine, beautiful, natural, organic side. And, and that was enough for me for a little bit. And then I smoked weed for the first time and right away was like, (laughs) you're like, "Mm, I think I like this. this." (laughs) But, and and again, I smoked weed because of the person I was dating at the time was like, I smoke weed. And I was like, okay, can I try that? Like in this phase of just starting from scratch, questioning everything and really trying to figure out like who I was and what I felt and what I believed. And we only briefly dated, but afterward I like kept smoking weed and noticed that I could connect with myself in a way that I never had. There was suddenly this barrier that was slowly taken down of shame of being so hyper aware of what other people expected of me started to have, again, like just my own spiritual thoughts and realizations of like, okay, maybe heavenly mother, heavenly father thing doesn't actually make sense. Uh, Maybe my God is nature and like spending time in nature and recognizing that there are these plants that can grow and open your mind. It was like helping me find myself uh, coming from a substance that had been condemned for so long. Yeah. And gradually I just started to have these moments of deep meditation where I would just get a little bit high, go into meditation and like 
really open up my subconscious and be like, what do I believe? What have I been told? Who told me this? I found something that helps me cut through the clutter somehow and like is helping me ground myself into my own spirituality, into my own spiritual beliefs, into my own spiritual practices that don't make me feel uneasy or don't make me feel like I'm betraying myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and absolutely. It was just kind of a slow, I mean, quick in hindsight, but slow process from there. Piece I, like, by piece. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, I'm not gonna, I just won't drink. And then it was like, okay, I dated, I had like my first non-member boyfriend. And then it was like, okay, I had sex for the first time. And then it was like, which by the way, I was like, hmm, that's it. <laughs> Cause that was when that's you lost it? your virginity. Yeah crazy but it's so interesting because i had been like having non-heteronormative sex yeah for years yeah you know you when you are trying to like follow the law of chastity mm. there are all of the loopholes and things and you're like oh as long as we're not having penetrative sex yep we are good at yeah. least that's how i felt and yeah so, because that was a lot of years for you because i yeah. got married so young so i didn't have that dating phase and you were dating in a different a totally different culture in san francisco yeah and still having to keep the law of chastity yes and it was so interesting because the first non-member i dated actually used to be a member we like met on hinge interesting and he like his dad's a general authority and he's like used to be a member but isn't anymore so it was so interesting him having all of the context mm -hmm. but like not caring like it wasn't affecting him anymore being able to kind of like be with somebody who understood the context that I had was really helpful. So helpful. But also I do remember being like, wait, this is sex. I should have known. <laughs> but I was like, at that point, you know, like writing my parents emails about like, we should be like respectful of where each other are. And like, mm -hmm. I'm, I don't wear my garments, but like, I don't know if I'm going to leave the church and like trying to just embrace this gray area and like really champion that and try to show that it was okay and that it was possible and literally bore my testimony about being kind to LGBTQ. Like up to the pulpit in church. Hell yeah. How was that received? It was received really well. I actually had a friend who texted me after and came out to me and who was in wow. the ward and it meant a lot to me. And I remember telling my family, like this is why we need to have space for everyone and why we need to, like be kind to people and compassionate at the same time me in my room like writing on a sticky note things to talk to therapist about bisexuality gay girls but then like crumpling it up and throwing it away like i'm crazy i'm kooky no mm -hmm. way i want to talk about the queerness yes. aspect and yes. the family aspect i just it was never an option to me to date women you know it was just like i yeah i was like yeah my purpose is to date boys so i'm gonna do that all the time. I love boys. La, da, 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 da. Until I realized like I wasn't really finding fulfillment in those relationships and like had kind of like hunches of like, am I into girls or not? But like not really feeling like I could even make that decision because I had never had any experience with women or anything. Yeah. But I finally had my last fling with a man where I was like, he was nice. He was cool. He treated me well. He liked me. He was cute. I did not. I did not want to see him naked more than anything in my I have ever felt. I was like, <gasps> You're like keep your clothes on. Literally, I just was like, I, I don't. I do not. And I couldn't figure out what it was because I kept being like, he's so nice. He really likes me. And then 
I read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Ooh. And I had started it earlier that year, stopped because subconsciously I just was like, not Mm -hmm. ready, not Mm -hmm. ready for this. And then I read it again and read the part in, have you read that book? Yes. Okay. Also part of my deconstruction. Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Glennon is my everything. She's my God. Yes. Um, Amen. In the name of Glennon AM. Yes. AM. I said, (laughs) amen. I read that and she talked about how she had recognized that she had always set herself up to be desired, but had never recognized or had learned how to desire. And I was like, oh, and it, it hit me pretty quickly. Oh, I think I might be queer. And I remember seeing a friend of yours on Instagram and being mm. like, oh, well, she's gay. And I think I think I kind of have a crush. Maybe does this mean I'm gay? And like having a full like identity crisis. Oh, I can only imagine not knowing like, OK, well, what do I do about this? And eventually called my sister one day and was like, I think I have a crush on a girl. And she was just like, OK. Cool. And that was... What a good response. Yeah, it was great. And it was so helpful. And she was like, I think you should tell Haley that you have a crush on her friend and go for it. (laughs) And so I did. You were one of the first people that I came out to. One, because we had been deconstructing things all along without realizing it, but also had always just been a safe person for Mm. me. And it was interesting because once I did that, I kind of recognized like, oh, I I don't actually know if this is about a person. You know, this is just about me and allowing myself to like want what I want and so I started I like got on hinge and started talking to girls and I like went on my first girl date and it was great I wasn't uncomfortable I felt like so safe and so like seen and just it was a completely different experience than any date with a man I've ever had yeah and that was just like okay I'm queer great I'm queer and I can just like take this off my plate but with that came like I need to come out to my family, yeah, to my parents. Where was your faith at this point? Did Had you left the church? I mean, I don't know if I've ever, like, left the church. I know. It's hard I to just, say. like, never went back. Yeah. I guess. At this time, I had recognized, okay, this doesn't feel true to me, so that's fine. I yeah. can just yeah. move on with my life, but I know that this is going to be, like, hard for my parents. Mm-hmm. Did your parents know where you were at with your faith or was you coming out as queer kind of that conversation as well? Same conversation. Yeah. So I decided to write my parents an email because I I love it. really wanted them to have space to be able to react how they wanted to because this is their experience. You know, like they had a very different idea for me than the way my life has turned out. And though I don't feel bad about that or like it's wrong, I do understand how confusing that must be and just like the crisis you must go through when you really believe if my child deviates from this path, then I might lose them. That's terrifying. Absolutely. And so I decided to write them an email. And the initial conversation we had, like on the phone afterward, was definitely tricky and very emotional. It kind of turned out to be like my dad and I not arguing because it wasn't it wasn't arguing, but rather me trying to point out what was hurtful to me. But I felt like a a toddler, you know, like I was bearing my soul to my parents, just like wanting to be accepted. And that doesn't always come across in the most like eloquent or mature way. I don't regret the conversation that we had because I think it was necessary. It did hurt me at the time. And I was really nervous to see my parents and, and to just not lie to them anymore. And I knew that I needed to do that 
when I did because my cousin's wedding was coming up Mm. and I wasn't going to be wearing my garments. I wanted to drink at the wedding. I also just didn't want that day to become about my insecurity around my parents instead of like my cousin slash best friend who I've had my whole life, you know? It's really lovely how much compassion you were able to show your parents even when it's your belonging on the line. Mm. And I think that's always a complicated dynamic because you show a lot of maturity in saying, I understand this is probably going to be difficult for them, Mm -hmm. but it's also difficult for you. You want to feel unconditionally loved. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how that all panned out. But I think that's a really mature way of seeing that situation where everybody Mm. has feelings involved and ultimately it's unfortunate yeah that there's maybe a fear instilled in your parents that makes it difficult for them to maybe give you what you need in a moment Mm -hmm. like that so I think there's definitely a lot there how did that pan out then after that conversation it was great good it was a tricky conversation and then Afterward, my mom like reached out and was like, we love you no matter what. You knowing that you're loved is the most important thing to us. And like we recognize that this is an us thing that we need to get past, not a you thing. And that really meant a lot to me. Huge. And at the same time, I was still so nervous to see them and still felt really hurt that maybe they weren't able to react the way that I hoped they would when I initially came out to them. And in that email, the whole thing was about queerness and like discovering my queerness. And at the very, very end, it was like, thank you for respecting my choices. I wouldn't expect you to do what I'm doing. But for me, like truth right now looks like being queer, stepping away from the church, just that little thing. I I didn't even really try to make it a point of like, I'm leaving the church, but that was really, really, really hard for them that I was stepping away from the church. And especially for my dad, which makes so much sense because he was so dedicated to the church, but also because he had more of a rough childhood. Mm. And then he joined the church when he was 18 and he met my mom on his mission. They got married very quickly after. His life went from being unstable to very stable. And he created this whole life and self and family off of this thing that essentially saved him. I can only imagine how scary that would be for your child to deviate from that when you're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand what could be on the other Mm -hmm. side. I've been there. This saved me. I promise. Yes, exactly. And so I was like angry at my dad, but also had empathy for him. And I was like sad that he couldn't just accept me, but also when we were together in person, couldn't deny how much he loved me and that Mm -hmm. he wasn't treating me poorly or treating me differently when we were together, that maybe he was deeply confused and trying to understand it on his own, but doing his best not to let that bleed into our relationship. Yeah, to project that back onto how he treated you. Yeah. Yeah, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, but I'm, I'm so, so grateful now that I followed my intuition coming out to myself, coming out to my friends coming out to my parents, sending the email, all of these things that felt like maybe I was rushing it, but I just felt like I had to, you know, it was like part of my soul where I had to do this. Yeah. And at this point, a friend of mine from college had moved in to my house and was my roommate. And we immediately just started spending all of our time together, waking up at like 6am to do yoga, even and like journal Uh and go on walks and things and then staying up to like, 1 a.m. watching movies, gradually getting closer and cuddlier, but really just doing life with another person. 
slowly realizing like I have feelings for her. And it was tricky because she was in her own situation. She was going through a divorce and I didn't want to complicate that for her at all. And I also didn't want to complicate it for myself, but she was a huge support for me in giving me the space to be myself. Like she was the person I had read this email before I sent Mm. it. And like, she laid there and spooned me for hours while I was on the phone crying, coming out to my parents. And Mm. we were just friends. Genuine magnetism Mm -hmm. of like needing to be together and wanting to be together because it was everything. And we didn't expect that. I love this love story so much. In retrospect, I'm so grateful that I came out to my dad and my mom when I did, because a few weeks after that, this friend and I, Alora, my girlfriend, finally confessed our love for each other. And we're just basically like, wait, we're, we're in love, right? Yes. Okay, (laughs) great. We're in love. And we had already planned before when we were just friends to have her meet my family in New Jersey. She had like become obsessed with hearing about my parents and my upbringing and childhood since we moved in together. Like really reminded me how magical my childhood was. Mm. Reminded me specifically how magical my dad is and how much he has done to try to infuse magic into my life. And really like sparked this renewal of love and appreciation for my family that I had kind of looked past through my anger of not being understood. Yeah. We realized we were in love and we told each other and we were like, okay, we're, we're together and you're going to come meet my parents, but they don't know we're dating. And what do we do about that? And we ended up not telling them we were dating beforehand. Although everyone just knew, you know, while we were there, it was just like felt complete. Mm. This weekend at my parents' house with my parents and my brother and his wife and my sister and her boyfriend, who she's now getting married to, and me and Alora, and it felt complete. And it felt like, oh, this is the easiest it's ever been to be with our family. And this is the easiest integration that I've ever experienced. And we're not even acknowledging the fact that she and I are clearly a couple and clearly in love. They could just feel how myself I was and feel like how much peace she brought to the family. And I remember specifically after she left, I was still there for a few days and my dad being like, you know, I really, I really love Alora. She brings a lot of peace Mm. and she's just, she's very sweet. I really like her. Not even acknowledging that obviously we were in love and dating. Yeah, but giving you that. Giving me that. Yeah. And it was so validating because I also, there was so much in her that reminded me of the magic of my dad and to see them be able to connect in real life. And I just, it was everything. It was priceless. And for me at the time, I was like, oh, this is what my whole life is going to be like. This is what my family was meant to be. Mm. And I like cherish that trip and time that we spent together so much because I had no idea that three months later, my dad would die out of Mm. nowhere. And I find myself wondering, what would I feel if I hadn't followed my intuition? If I hadn't come out to him? If I hadn't had that interaction with him and with Alora and with my whole family that has become priceless to me? Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's really beautiful what you said. Kind of feeling a call to introduce Alora to your family, to do it on these terms where it wasn't maybe about 
making, not that you wouldn't be able to make a statement if you wanted to, but it was just like, this is my person and they're here. Yeah. And that felt like enough. Yes. That's really, really beautiful. And it I'm was really happy really you beautiful. had that. I'm so grateful. I am so grateful I have that. And it has just since become invaluable. From that point on, you know, it was just like Maddie and Alora. I'm trying to think what came next. Yeah. Let's just jump to the yeah. Tell me the big, the big stuff. Yeah. Tell me about the death, however much you want to say. Yeah. The death of your dad, what that was like, the context around that. Mm-hmm. Again, as much as you want to share. It's interesting to reflect on the time leading up to his death because I had no idea what was going to happen. You know, I had no idea how my life would change so drastically. So, so drastically. Also, side note, I didn't mention this before. For my whole life, my biggest fear has been losing my dad young. Really? The first panic attack I can remember having when it was when I was a child. And I remember getting out of the shower and like drying off and having this vulnerable feeling of like, oh, your dad could die. And being like, oh, that's really scary. Like this person who is my everything, who's the best dad and the best husband and the best person in the whole world. That's terrifying. And it continued throughout my life where I would just have these uncomfortable feelings in my gut of like, my dad's going to die. And it was always met with, you're just being anxious. Yeah, that's irrational. Yes, exactly. And so I had like just told myself this would never happen, you know? Yeah. Even though part of me knew it always would. Yeah, sensed it almost. Yeah, which scared me a lot because I've always had a strong intuition and felt like I have little warnings. I used to attribute that to God. Like my spiritual gift is him like giving me a little bit of a heads up so that I'm not so debilitated by it. When I was older, a couple of years ago, I had a really bad panic attack, feeling so scared that my dad was going to die. Inconsolable, my roommates trying to help me calm down, and it being this like visceral pain of, I can't lose him. I then found out from my sister shortly after that panic attack that time that I was freaking out, my dad had actually gone to the hospital. He had collapsed and gone to the hospital for something else, but he hadn't told anyone. He didn't want to worry us. So he hadn't told, didn't tell us, but she knew I had this panic attack and she knew that he was actually unwell. And like when those two things came together, it really scared me. Yeah. Because it validated that intuition. It validated the intuition for the first time where it was like, maybe I'm not just having anxiety. Maybe I am just a spiritual person who really is in tune with myself and the world and the universe and my family and my friends and just a part of everything. And maybe I don't have to gaslight myself into just thinking that I'm crazy. Maybe there's actually something to this and that's spooky, Mm. but still not super tangible, you know? Yeah. And I think it speaks from what I'm hearing to a really, really meaningful connection with your dad. You were obviously thinking about your dad a lot. You valued your relationship with your dad so highly for it to be such a concern. And I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone hopes their parent dies. Totally. But for it to be so to be so present for you yes shows how valued it seems like that relationship was for you and who you are yeah my dad was just the best dad he 
built us a tree house that had a slide and we would play catch in the backyard and he would build like jumps off of our deck in the snow so the neighbors could come and sled. And he was not only the best dad to me showing up for me, never missing an event, never being critical toward me or showing me anything but love, but also toward my siblings. Also the best husband to my mom, the best bishop to his ward, the best friend to the neighbors. Everybody who came in contact with my dad felt like they were the most important person that he had ever met. When I started dating Alora and telling her more about my upbringing and my childhood, that really sparked again for me, remembering my my parents are great. Like, they really have given me a lot. And, like, specifically, my dad is so magical. Mm. It just was always my safety net Mm -hmm. that was the foundation that i built my whole universe on yeah my dad will always be there yeah the couple of months leading up to his passing i was admittedly angry with him feeling like there was some distance between us and knowing that he was still uncomfortable with my queerness or maybe not even my queerness but more my leaving the church Mm -hmm. the week before he passed it was his birthday and i remember feeling kind of like I'm a little mad at my dad this year on his birthday and just kind of like sending him a birthday text, FaceTiming with the family, but not giving it my all mm-hmm. like I always have. How old was he? So what? 57. Okay. He and my mom had moved to New Jersey the year prior for their whole marriage. They lived in Utah and then just um, the year before last up and moved to New Jersey so that they could be closer to my brother and his wife when they had kids. They'd been in Jersey almost a year. It was a Wednesday morning, and I woke up to a text from my mom that my dad had collapsed Mm. at work and that they were, she didn't have much more information, but that she would let us know. I had gotten up early because I had a really early meeting, and I remember just like sitting through that meeting feeling so uneasy, obviously, not knowing like how serious it was or anything because he also had struggled with mystery health problems over the years so i was like oh he's maybe he's just sick and he had had his gallbladder removed that summer before like hopefully helping his sickness and it did for a little bit so when i saw him he was like in better health than he had been in years Mm. in july when i visited with my family so then just a couple of months later this was october 5th that i got this text it was like oh Alarming that he wasn't doing well, and also I didn't go to worst-case scenario right away. Yeah. Uh, But I remember getting off this meeting and my mom calling me and just saying, I I don't think that this looks good. Mm. Um, His heart stopped. He luckily collapsed at... He was a physical therapist, so he collapsed in this office right next to a defibrillator. So when... His coworker found him. She was able to resuscitate him, though his heart had been stopped for about 10 to 15 minutes when the paramedics finally got there. And at this point, I just went into immediate panic mode and was throwing things into a suitcase and trying to find the next flight out to Jersey or New York so that I could get there. It was like my body knew I needed to be there before my mind could comprehend what was actually what was happening. actually happening yeah you know, like it, it was it felt like a movie mm. oh this is just 
for the drama. Nothing's gonna happen, but I'm gonna go out there and be with my family because I need to be. And I got on the first flight to New York where my brother lives and got in very late and stayed at their house that night. We were gonna drive up to Jersey the next day. And I went to sleep that night and had a dream that was the most vivid dream I've ever had in my life. I remember realizing I would be able to fly anywhere I wanted. Taking off with like such ease and effortlessness, flying through the sky and having this distinct thought, dad doesn't like it when I fly. Then thinking, but I'll show him how beautiful this is. So in my dream, I'm then flying over the ocean and the mist is flying into my face and I'm touching the water and I'm, I'm flying over the mountains and the next thing I know I'm flying through big puffy white clouds and poof out of the top and there's just this radiant rainbow sunrise or sunset and having this distinct thought of once dad sees this he won't be afraid anymore mm. so giddily and excitedly flying home back through the same way and getting back to my childhood home being so tired that I just like fell asleep in the garage on the floor and as I was falling asleep I remember thinking so I'm falling asleep in my dream mm -hmm. thinking it's okay it's okay that I'm falling asleep here because dad will come in and he'll take me to safety he always does and sure enough in the dream I felt this like warm light fill the room as like the door opened and I heard my dad walk in and I could feel him but I couldn't see him because I was I was curled up in the fetal position with my eyes closed almost like I wasn't watching a dream anymore I was in there living it mm -hmm. and I felt him scoop me up and hold me in his arms and walk me inside and wanting I wanted to open my eyes so badly to look at him but I just was too tired and I remember him setting me down just knowing I was safe and hearing kind of indistinct chatter from he and my mom in the background, and then waking up just completely drenched in sweat. Laying there, my alarm went off. It was early. We were going to be driving to New Jersey really, really early. And having this gut feeling of, I really hope that wasn't goodbye. Mm. I really hope that wasn't my closure with my dad. So we drove to New Jersey. All of us went to the hospital to meet my dad there. He had opened his eyes, but he was on a ventilator. He wasn't able to breathe on his own mm -hmm. or speak. And my family was able to see him, which was everything. He was in and out of consciousness because of, you know, like the medicine he was on or the state he was in. But there was this purity in his eyes that I'll just never forget. And I remember specifically... We were in the ICU, so only two of us could be in the room at a time. And I remember my mom saying, we brought Maddie along for comedic relief. Like I'd made a joke <laughs> or something. And I was like, yeah, 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 I get it. That's all I'm good for in this family. And my dad just like grabbed my hands with so much intensity and just looked into my eyes. Hmm. And he couldn't speak because he had a ventilator in, you know. Mm -hmm. But he just started to weep. I just could hear him say like you know that's not true you know you have a purpose in this family beyond being the comedic relief mm -hmm. and almost this exchange of I get it I'm sorry I see you from both of us you know really just like stripping everything away and seeing each other as people who love each other people who have always had 
a deep spiritual connection outside of just Mormonism. Yeah. Also, just this person who I'm like, I am, I am half you. Everything I love about you is in me. Mm. And that was a moment that I really needed because I suddenly knew, regardless of what happened, that we were okay. He and I were on good terms. There was no hard feelings. Yeah. There was no resentment. We were just seeing each other for who we were. Yeah, very purely. Very it purely. Like. Yeah. Hi, it's me again. Sorry for the kind of abrupt cutoff. I promise I made it the least amount of a cliffhanger possible while still trying to split the episode up into fairly equal parts. So that's where we're going to end off for today. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, part two of this conversation will be this Friday. So a bonus episode, the first time on Girls Camp, we're doing two episodes in a week, part two on Friday. Hope to see you there. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a fantastic day or afternoon, or evening. See you on Friday. Bye. G-I-R.